Why are you what? calling me? This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. I'm excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh. Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring... You get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less, or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, etc. We have a special offer for Ruby Rogues listeners. Go to rollbar.com/rubyrogues, sign up, and get the Bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked free. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com/rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 261 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Hi, everybody. Sam Livingston Gray. It's just another manic Monday. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder, Ruby Remote Conf coming up in like a month. So go check it out. We have a special guest this week, and that's Carrie Miller. Hey, everyone. Do you want to give us a brief introduction since you haven't been on for a while? Sure. I am a Ruby developer and team lead based up in Seattle, Washington, which is in the upper left-hand corner, where uh, all of our news is delayed by about three hours. Nice. We got you on today to talk about networking without networking, and that was kind of your term. Do you want to give us an idea of what that is, what you're talking about there? Sure. Well, as a lot of people uh, who've met me know, um, I kind of call myself a little bit of a dirty hippie uh, in some ways, uh, a little bit counterculture. and. Um, I never wanted to be stuck in an office with suits and ties. And one of the things that I always saw as the advice that uh, people would give whenever you were talking about developing your career was it was really important to network. And I would see networking events. I would go to a networking event and it would just be a bunch of people looking very uncomfortable, passing business cards back and forth. And it was such a transactional event that I kind of became allergic to those very, very quickly. That, you know, if I didn't have something to offer to that other person, then they were done. They were on to the next, you know, uh, speed dating business card exchange. And so networking without networking is that idea that it's re- it is really important to develop your professional network. But that term doesn't mean just, you know, who whose business cards you have, whose names you have in your Rolodex, but what are the relationships that you have with other people? Who have you met? Who have you done work with? Who have you um, had a legitimate, honest, authentic exchange with on some level? Hi, Carrie Miller. I'd like to connect with you on LinkedIn. must grow professional network exactly exactly like what do you endorse those people for i love having those conversations with people though where they come up to me and there's you you can see it just as you talk to them that they have no interest in me whatsoever the only interest they have in me is well he's on ruby rogue so he must be worth knowing and i'm just like (laughs) ah i'm just gonna go grab lunch with somebody interesting thanks 
Yeah, and I, I've been on both sides of that conversation. I mean, there's people that I've I've definitely like walked up to and like introduced myself, and uh, I don't have anything to say other than that. Like, oh, I, I met this person, great, and I you stand there awkwardly next to them, and eventually just kind of drift away. I had a conversation with um, Aaron Patterson recently where um, I was talking about like, how do you make it so that people feel more comfortable coming up and saying hi to you when you're at a conference, for example? And Aaron said stickers. So I took his advice and I made myself some code with stickers. And um, now on Twitter and during my talk or anything like that, I'm like, hey, if you want a sticker, come up and say hi and I will give you a code with sticker. And um, it's like giving um, shy people an excuse to come up and say hi and introduce themselves, which I know a lot of people really have trouble with yeah we all turned our webcams on i actually have a aaron patterson sticker i got at mountain west ruby conference and it was just sitting on top of my desk because i haven't sorted the piles of stuff on my desk yet and yeah it's his cat gorby puff and yeah that's kind of an interesting way of doing it i've done that as well with the podcast uh, logos as stickers and it does seem to work out uh some people will just come up and get the sticker and some people will come up and talk to you and either one's fine i mean you know everybody's a different place but yeah is definitely a good way of doing it. Yeah, the term I heard for that was uh, social currency. And I first heard it in the context of like toddlers who will come up and, and give you a toy. And it's not really about the toy. It's about giving you something. Oh, is that and, is that what was happening at church on Sunday? I had this little kid come up to me like six times with different toys. And then my four-year-old would take them back to his mom. So, Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, just imagine that, but at a conference and, and, and you're set, right? Mm-hmm. Social yeah. currency is a great concept. Do you um, want to talk about like some of the implications of conversation and networking and stickers in the context of social currency? No, I think I actually uh, I just heard the term and it stuck around in my head and I didn't do any further research on it. But um, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, like one other way that you can, you know, a fairly popular way of doing that, of course, is you're at a conference and you sort of get dragged along to dinner with some people. Sometimes I've found that leads to sitting awkwardly at the end of the table while everybody else talks to each other. And that sucks. But sometimes it's turned into some really cool conversations, too, that I with people that I would not have otherwise talked to. I think it's really important in those circumstances to have something that you can talk about. I think small talk is really hard for introverts in particular, but you can always find something like, hey, what did you think of the keynote today? Or what kind of cool stuff are you working on right now? People have forgotten, I think, how to ask questions, and asking questions is a great way to get a conversation started. Absolutely. One of the things that I've done is, um, you know, in addition to getting Sticker Mule, my 50 bucks for my own personal sticker, uh, is to... Um, <laughs> You know, I talk a lot about the weird jobs I've had that aren't programming, the different career paths I've gone down or, you know, strange things that I've done. And part of that is because I think those are really interesting and I, I want people to be valued as, as whole things. Um, but also it's like I'm trying to put out as many possible hooks for other people to have a conversation with me. So I've met a bunch of people because I mentioned, oh, I've done work with glass. And so I've had people who are former glass artists up and start a conversation or other people who are stagehands or, you know, what any of the weird things I've done. Someone will always come up and like, we just want to have a conversation and make a connection uh, around that topic. It gives them an end to, uh, you know, let, let's, let's tra trade experiences that isn't about work, really. And how much do you think it's our obligation as the people on the other side of the networking equation to create those opportunities for people to connect with us? Well, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to jump in on this because... I mean, it's one thing if you're trying to go out and actually grow your network, but I think those of us who are more experienced obviously don't have as much of that problem because we at least have coworkers as we've moved from job to job where newer people really don't. And 
in those cases, I really do feel like it's incumbent upon us to reach out to people and make sure that people who are further down the, that ladder, however you measure it, have the opportunities to connect with the people who are going to help them ahead. It's not even out of some sense of, well, they don't have the opportunities that I have. If you want to boil it down to something that's tangible and actually benefits you, I mean, we are in a growing field and we need to bring more people in and we need to level them up quickly. So, you know, whether you're doing it because you care about these people or you're doing it because it helps the field as a whole and helps uh, everybody move ahead, you know, it, there's a benefit to it. And you're in a position it will cost you almost nothing to introduce them to the person that can help them or to be the person that can help them. And, and it can bring you so much. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if I if I know that Sam has the experience that new person programmer, whoever they are, needs, and I introduce them to Sam, it costs me two minutes. It may cost Sam a little more time as he helps mentor them in some way, but even then, compared to the good that it does for them and the good that it does for the community, the cost is relatively low. And for me, as the person who made the connection for him, it really did cost me nearly nothing. And I then, like to introduce Sam to people who like cucumber. <laughs> yeah, I was saying in the chat, that's my favorite conversation starter is to ask people if they've used Cucumber and if so, what do they think about it? Because it's almost always an instant rant starter, which is great. I mean, the problem there is getting somebody to shut up for two minutes so you can get a word. <laughs> but I was going to say in the example that you gave, Chuck, you introduced somebody to me and I wind up you know, mentoring them a little bit. I get a ton out of that. It's not yeah. even about cost. I mean, the only cost for me is that as an introvert, you know, I have to burn a little bit of energy talking to a new person, but I've gotten fairly experienced at that too. So that's not even that bad. I mean, my default position is if somebody, you know, says, oh, I'm interested in X and I know anybody who has even the remotest bit of knowledge in that, in that, and I see them walking by and be like, oh, 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 hey, come over here. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important for um, new folks when you're a more senior developer or more established somewhere to to try to make those sorts of connections with them on a personal level because I, I, I want to believe that that will help foster some trust, right? When you have a relationship with somebody, it's, it's much easier to feel vulnerable and to ask, you know, ask the quote-unquote dumb questions to be in a place where you're, you're feeling okay to fail. And uh, especially when you're newer, whether it's a new developer or just new at a company, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of pressure to, to succeed quickly. I also want to just jump in here because I've been doing these 15-minute calls with podcast listeners. In fact, I was like three minutes late to this call because I was doing one of those. They scheduled it right up against the, the show because we we're doing it at an odd time. But when I talk to these folks, a lot of times it's not even just, well, you know, where are you on your code journey? I like to know. Where are you from? You know, are, are you married? Do you have kids? Do you live with your parents? Do you live with roommates? Do you, you know, whatever, you know, find out who they are as people. Because it gives this whole different flavor to the conversation. And in a lot of cases, it, it gives you some context on where they are and where they come from and, and what it's really about for them. Because we all come to our code journey from different places and we all grow into these programmers from different places. And it makes a lot of difference for me, at least, to know, oh, okay, well, I grew up poor in the suburb of some big city, or, you know, I grew up middle class and went to college, or I was a semi-professional athlete, but now I'm 30 and I'm you know, my body's worn out and I'm doing something different. All of that means different things to different people. 
and makes this code journey different for these different people too, because they have different things that they care about and different things that they want to get out of it. And um, that kind of levels the playing field too, because people who are new at being programmers are not new at being individuals, mm-hmm. and they can say, "Oh, I know how to talk to you about this thing because I lived it." Right. We yeah, we meet in a place of uh, being equals then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I find as somebody who has a hard time remembering names that uh, knowing those extra details about somebody gives me a couple of extra hooks when I run into them, you know, at a, in the hallway track next year to be like, oh, right, I it's going to take me three minutes for your name to pop out of cold storage. But I remember that you like cats a lot, like you have five cats and then There's I can a- say, hey, so how are your cats? There's a hack that someone told me about that when you share your name with someone, they have nothing to attach it to. But after you've talked about yourself, if you share your name again, now they have a memory and some data to attach it to. So it makes it easier to remember them. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start trying that. I, I have the worst time um, because, uh, you know, I, I really am pretty outgoing, especially at conferences. And I meet so many people. And then, like, I'll go back a year later and people come up and be, hey, Carrie. And I'm like, hey, you. And I, I can't remember people, you know, because I just had one conversation like a year ago. And I always feel really, really super bad. I, I that want to me all the time, too. And what I do now is I'm like, hi there. Where did I see you last? That can sometimes help jar my memory. Yeah, that's usually enough for me. I remember the face. I remember everyone's faces. It's the it's the names that I have trouble with. I like that technique, Coraline, especially if you travel or make it out to many events. Because then it's not even, well, you don't remember me. It's just, yeah. It's, oh, well, I've been at many, many events, and I don't remember which one we ran into each other at. Yeah, exactly. I also have a, a strong desire, a burning desire for everyone to use an accurate, up-to-date picture of themselves for their Twitter profile, because it's really hard <laughs> to identify someone by an anime character. When I meet them in person, they're like, I've been following you on Twitter for like two years. You don't remember me? I'm like, you don't look like a bunny. I'm sorry. That's but so I've true. had that little live journal ca- or that little caricature of myself since live journal days. So, you know. That looks exactly like a- you, Sam. So that's different. <laughs> it, it totally does. One other thing I want to put out there just for people who are new at this, who are going to their first conference or first users group or whatever, most of the people who are going out to these events are willing to talk to other people, even less experienced people. And in a lot of cases, especially less experienced people. So if you go out and you go out of your way to talk to people, they're going to want to know where you're at. I mean, there are going to be a few people out there who are kind of curmudgeonly and are not going to want to. But just move on to somebody else, because I can pretty much guarantee you that the majority of those people are going to be willing to talk to you and find out who you are and where you're at and how they can help. And if you then have something to talk to them about, so you get past the pleasantries, do a little bit of small talk, and then you can actually ask them things, a lot of times you can find mentorship out of that, even if it's just mentorship for the one evening while you sit around after the users group and spend a little bit of time working on your pet project. I um, I was just at RailsConf a few weeks back, and they have a great guides program. So they'll pair someone up who is new to RailsConf or even, you know, more likely new to being a developer and pair them up with someone who's somewhat more experienced who sort of like helps them pick which talks to go to and hangs out with them, makes sure they're not alone at lunchtime and at dinner time, and um, helps them make the most out of their experience. And I really wish more conferences would do that because the first conference I went to, which was probably like six or seven years ago now, is Ruby Midwest. And I did not know how to attend a conference. I was a smoker back then. So I'd sit through a talk. I'd get up. I'd go outside. I'd have a cigarette. I'd find my coworker, ask him what he thought go back in and go to the next talk. And I didn't, I didn't meet a single person. Um, I didn't interact with anyone. 
I didn't um, go to dinners. I didn't like try and socialize. I didn't meet anybody. I just was there for talks. And I thought that's what you were supposed to do. I didn't know any better. That's what I thought for like my first three or four conferences. I had the benefit of going to Mountain West Ruby conferences in my first conference. And I had two experiences. One was that I was there with a few people that I knew from the users group. And so they pulled me along for a lot of those things, which really helped. The other experience that I had was that I showed up early because I live in, I live near Salt Lake City and the conferences was at that time in the Salt Lake City library. So I just went and sat down uh, next to, you know, some guy. And I had a couple of Ruby questions and I was feeling not particularly shy that day. So I leaned over and I looked at the guy and I said, look, I'm really trying to understand mocks and stubs. And what can you tell me about mocks and stubs? Well, the guy looked at me and, you know, in his deep voice kind of laughed for a second. And then Jim Wyrick explained to me what mocks and stubs were. And, you know, again, he just helped me along, got to know who I was a little bit. You know, over the years, we got to be become much better friends because I saw him at many other conferences. But, I mean, that was my first conference experience was, you know, I happened to sit down next to somebody who made it a large part of his career and life teaching other programmers things. And I happened to go with a group of people who knew that they needed to pull a new person along to help them meet people. And it makes a huge difference being able to do that. And if you don't have that group of people, just go get to know a few people and then ask if you can hang out with them. And I know it's not always easy, but then at least you have that familiarity to help you overcome some of that introversion that I sometimes struggle with. Or find somebody who looks like they're lost and say, hey, will you be my conference buddy for this conference? Yeah. (laughs) There's another really simple hack that, uh, a social hack that I forget which conference I was at that I first heard about it, but it seemed so obvious in retrospect once it had been explained, which is that, you know, oftentimes as somebody who knows a few people at a conference, you wind up talking to them in the hallways and the sort of natural configuration that you wind up in is a little circle with everybody facing inward towards each other. And uh, the really simple thing that you can do if you find yourself in one of those little knots of people is to move to the side and leave a gap. Mm-hmm. Just, I was absolutely going to bring that up, Sam. I think it was Ash Dryden who taught me that at a maybe Madison Ruby that I saw that is great and like actually goes so far as like if someone's walking by looking on certain say, hey, why don't you come over and join us? That's yep. the intermediate maneuver. But yeah, that's that's also a wonderful. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. The other thing that I've done is I have leaned over a couple of times if somebody looked lost and asked them if they understood where we were at talking, because sometimes the conversations get really deep, especially when you're with more experienced people. And I've worked out just translating, you know, what people are talking about. Well, we're talking about this aspect of testing and we're talking about this aspect of architecture. And when we do these kinds of things, there are these kinds of trade-offs that we have to make and, you know, just get them enough up to speed to where they can kind of cling to the conversation and follow along a little bit and feel like they can ask questions. And a lot of times that's helpful as well. In a way, it's, um, you know, that we're all trying to strive to be somebody else's gym. Mm-hmm. You know, in a way, I, I, I had a similar experience with Jim. And I also, at my first conference, you know, I, I happened to sit next to somebody who I had mutual friends with outside of the Ruby community. And this person was very exceptionally outgoing and was wearing an elf costume and made me sit in the front row with him at Madison Ruby. Awesome. At Madison Ruby. So instantly everyone's like, oh, well, you know, Franklin, and clearly you must know everybody and you've, you're part of the, the group now. Um, and it was, just, I just got fortunate and lucky in that case, but I, I want everyone to have that experience of, you know, making a friend or, you know, having an introduction to meet other people. 
I used to be extremely shy, um, which you'd never know now, but I used to have to trick myself into talking to people. And um, Carrie, this relates to you and me. I was at a conference one year. It was Review and West again. And to trick myself into engaging with people, I would play a little game. I would say, I'm going to go find someone with red shoes and introduce myself to them. On this particular day, my game was, I'm going to find someone who's taller than I am and say hello. And Carrie was the first tall person that I saw. I said hello to Carrie. We started talking and we've been fast friends ever since. The thing that I think is interesting about that, Coraline, is that it sounds so kind of silly. But if it works and it gets you to talk to somebody, it is well worth it. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it sounds a little bit strange. If that's the way it works for you, then that, you know, because the payoff is is so worth it. And yeah, you make a friend, you come to understand something new, you learn something new about some somebody that you never considered. I mean, yeah, it's totally worth it. And just imagine, Coraline, if you just said, okay, I'm going to go talk to somebody taller than me. I mean, what would you have missed out on? A lot. I would have missed out on a lot. And I was fine with the fact that I had to trick myself into being social. And I was fine with sort of, you know, pretending to be an outgoing person until I became an outgoing person. And I think, uh, you know, you have to give yourself permission to um, step outside of your comfort area for a little while. And you will find that it's rewarding. I absolutely hate the expression fake it so you make it. But I think in social settings, it can be valuable. Well, the other thing that I've had to give myself permission on related to this is that sometimes just being on all the time, you know, being around other people and having to interact at that level is really draining. And if it's a conference that's longer than two days, a lot of times the second day, I'll go take a nap during one of the sessions for an hour just so that I can recharge, get some alone time in the dark without having to, you know, kind of turn it on a little bit for everybody else. And then and then I'll go back to it. And that's okay, too. I mean, you, you take it all at your own speed. Yeah, that's absolutely essential. I've watched many a keynote live streaming at a conference I've been to from the hotel room. Just because, yeah, it takes a lot out of you to be social. And especially if being really social is not your natural state, you know, you have to take care of yourself. Absolutely. Yep. There's a picture of me that uh, Karina Zona tweeted at the last RubyConf that I didn't even know she had taken it because I was, it was before the talk that I gave and I was freaking out and I decided I was going to go and and, uh, meditate for a little bit. And uh, she walked by and, you know, I wear the dark sunglasses most of the time. So she couldn't tell if my eyes are open. She waved at me and she's like, oh, he must be meditating or something. So she decided to snap a picture and tweet about it. (laughs) But yeah, that was that was totally important self-care. And as an introvert, I really have to manage that a lot. One thing that I want to ask about with all of you folks here is basically I know that a lot of conferences have been adding newer programmers to their speaking roster. Um, We've seen this a couple of times where somebody who's been programming for a year or less winds up getting a speaking thing to talk about their experience or to talk about some concept that they've kind of dug deep on in in the course of their uh, shorter career. And they don't really know how to be a speaker because nobody's really explained it to them. I mean, I didn't when I first spoke and then I kind of grew into it as time went on. But how do you turn that into opportunities and at the same time, be appropriate about the fact that you're both a speaker and somebody that is trying to get to know people? That's a really good question. And I don't think I've ever had that posed to me quite that way. But I think there's the idea, though, that you're both a speaker and a new person and an attendee kind of all wrapped together it is a very kind of unique place to be. Um, it gives you a lot of opportunity. It opens some doors for different opportunities for connecting with people. 
once I started doing more conference speaking, now I'm going to speaker dinners, you know, where I'm standing off to the side of the stage where there's a couple other speakers and we're all nervous. Like we don't know we're we've all flown into say Kansas City, Ruby Midwest. We don't know anybody else, but we've run into each other once or twice at other conferences. Like there's a bond there or we're bonding with the fact that we're all nervous um, or we're all madly working on our PowerPoint presentations in the back of the room, right? right? Still going on stage. And that's, that's a shared experience, right? And so there's something that we can bond over and communicate and have a relationship that, that is created out of that. Yeah. One other thing that I just want to put out there as well is that after every talk that I've given, even the ones that I really didn't think I did that well on, after giving the talk and going out of the room, because I like to get out of the room so I'm out of the way of the next speaker, and go out into the hallway, and every time somebody wants to come up and talk to me about the talk, at least one person, and that one person immediately has identified with you. And that is a connection that you can make without any, well, without as much of the awkwardness, because they've already got to see and hear some of who you are. And so you can make that connection because they're interested in you. A few other things that I'll just throw out there. One is, is that at the larger conferences, there's usually a speaker's room and you'll see speakers go in there and furiously work on their talk. But that's also a good place if you want, if you're new and you want to get to know some of the other quote experts at the conference, these are the people who are actually presenting. It's a good place to go. And a lot of times there is a conversation going on in there. But I would also caution you not to spend all of your time in there, because if you're walking around with that badge that says speaker on it, you are going to have people come up and talk to you. And it really is an opportunity that you have to get to know other people at the conference or at the event. So um, a lot of conferences that I've been to, they do have speaker dinners and they have the speaker rooms. And I think these are really great if you're a speaker. It's great to have a space that you can work on your talk, like Carrie was talking about, or get to know the other speakers. Um, but there is sort of an inherent separation of people into a speaker class and an attendee class that I worry about a little bit. Yep. And um, I have never seen this addressed in such a good way as at RubyConf Australia in 2015. Instead of having a speaker dinner, what they did was they had maybe 500 attendees and the dinner options every night were laid out in advance and you could buy tickets to attend you know, go to dinner at the sushi place or go to dinner at the whatever place. But speakers weren't allowed to buy these tickets. Instead, speakers were distributed between all of the venues where people were having dinner. So that ensured that speakers were not clustered together and not isolated from the attendees and that everyone had a chance to have dinner with one of the speakers at least once which I thought was just a brilliant approach to really ensuring that people were, were mixing and interacting. Oh, that's wonderful because my instinct when I go to a conference is to catch up with all my friends. But yeah, that makes me less available. I'm stealing that for open source and feelings. That's a great idea. At awesome. NGConf, they did something a little bit different too. They had a speaker's dinner, which was, I believe, the night before the conference. And then they had a room where people could go up because uh, Angular 2 is new, and so they had a room where people could go either hack or work on the Angular 2 tutorial that's been published by the Angular team. And the speakers were all required to take a turn working for a session or two in that room helping people. They also were, I think that each speaker had to go into uh, the Ask Me Anything room and just answer questions for a session. And that was all part of the deal with speaking. And that way, people felt like they could come up, they could approach these speakers, the speakers were there, and try to, you know, spend some time. So if I wanted to get to know 
Carrie as a speaker because I liked her talk, then I could go in there and I could ask questions related to her talk or anything else that I know that she's worked on and have that interaction with her on kind of, it really wasn't that formal. You could just go in and, and talk. But because you were put in a position where you would, could essentially sit around the table with these folks and talk to them about whatever you were interested in, it really made a big difference because people could identify with them. They also had the Angular Core team and other uh, notable people in the community doing the same kind of thing. And I think that really opened things up for people and gave them a chance to know when and where their speaker that they wanted to talk to was going to be so they, they could connect with them. Oh, and as an occasional conference speaker, I would love that. It gives me a sort of a format that, you know, where it's built in that people will come up and talk to me. I mean, I know Avdi has talked about, you know, speaking at conferences as a way of getting around his terminal shyness. And I have definitely uh, borrowed that hack as well. Yep. And as attendees at conferences, I just also want to point out most speakers want you to come up and talk to them. If you yes, have a question please. or anything, question, topic. Uh, something to talk about. You heard this about them, whatever. You heard they like football, the same football team you like. I mean, whatever. They want to connect. That's part of why they speak. Yeah. And take a speaker to lunch. I mean, not just because, you know, they flew across the country, probably put all that work in, but they might be in a strange town too, like, you know, and want to go out to lunch and don't know where to go in, in a new city. Um, I was fortunate enough, I was at Ancient City Ruby um, in Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Florida, a few weeks ago. And, uh, bunch of guys from Tampa just came up and said, Hey, we're going to this barbecue place. Do you want to go? And I'm like, sure. I've never had barbecue. I'm from Seattle. You know, it was great. I had a great time. Yeah. If you're local too, you have an advantage. It's like, there's a really great place around the corner. One other thing that you can do as somebody who like, it doesn't matter how new you are to the community. If this is your first conference, if this is your first day writing Ruby, if you go to somebody's talk, and you want to talk to them, pay attention during the talk. And when you come up afterwards, there's always five or 10 people who come, you know, come up to a speaker and say, hey, that was a great talk. But if you ask them a specific question about something they were talking about, you will not be able to get them to shut up. Yeah, the the other uh, tactic on that, you know, if you can't come up with a specific question about a specific point they made, you can also pose a hypothetical situation. My company does X, Y, and Z does this apply to us or how does this apply to us or when would it apply to us? That's that trick of asking the, the open-ended questions to get other people to talk. Yep. I wanted to talk a little bit about users groups as well. They're similar. And really the point that kept coming into my head was uh, speaking at users groups as well. If you're new, the users group here does a primer is what they call it every meeting. And so that's an opportunity for somebody to get up and speak about a topic that's rather, for lack of a better word, basic. You introductory, know. perhaps? Yeah. And and the idea is to just get back to those basic concepts that we all use every day. And so, you know, the Ruby group, I mean, people have gotten up and talked about the string class, or they've talked about math, or they've talked about, you know, just some other topics. So you don't have to have this genius level thing to talk to people or to give a presentation at a conference or a users group. And I really just wanted to bring that up because it's a terrific opportunity then for you to have people come up and give you feedback or for people to, you know, to know who you are and then to start up a conversation later. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot about conferences. I think there's this whole world of other places and situations where we do networking, where we, we can make those sorts of connections and user groups are a great one. Also, I mean, we're talking a lot about like the strategies for introverts to kind of get out of their shell and what are the excuses we use to to hack into those conversations. But there's a lot of other things that you can do besides just going up and introducing yourself to people. You know, similarly to how becoming a teacher will help you learn 
the thing that you're teaching about much more deeply, volunteer to be an organizer uh, at a conference or for a local meetup. Because all of a sudden, like you become the expert and you get to meet a lot of people and you're, you're working on a thing. You're sharing that experience of building something together. That's a really, really strong and powerful uh, relationship to create. Yeah. One other thing that I just want to jump in with. I mean, I have 10 strategies in my email course. You can get it, get a coderjob.com. But I mean, networking doesn't have to even have to be in person. You can participate in the users groups mailing list. You can get on the Slack channel. You can post code snippets uh, that answer a question. You can, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that you can, you know, generally interact with people that doesn't, doesn't have to be this kind of in-person thing. I think that's what Carrie was trying to get at a little bit too. Yeah. Another little hack that I have used occasionally is uh, anytime I know that I'm going to be traveling someplace, I look to see if there's any chance that there's a Ruby user group nearby that happens to be meeting. Um, like I went to London in 2007 and there actually wasn't a meeting of the London Ruby user group the week that I was there, but I did manage to convince two people to come out to the pub and say hello and chat for a bit. And I've been on the London Ruby user group mailing list ever since. I've had some good conversations there. So yeah, that's sort of a combo move. Yeah, that totally works. I've been to the Boulder Ruby users group. I've been to one or two in California, I think. And whenever I go to a conference, I try and organize a meetup. So AngieConf, even though I live here, I did one. I'm going to be in Chicago on July 9th, and I'm pulling one together there. And yeah, it makes a big difference because immediately, if they show up, you have something in common. Because you know you know each other, you know somebody in common, uh, you have that programming, whatever it is, you know, Ruby, or even just we're coders and we like code in common. And that's enough a lot of times to just get the ball rolling. One of the things that I've I've always done is um, any anytime you know I'm doing any sort of you know, new, especially if I'm speaking to an audience of people who are who are newer, so I always say please reach out on Twitter to me if you have any follow up questions or if you want to connect, you know, if you want help with anything, you know, or, or if I see new speakers, you know, like if you want to practice. And a surprising number of those folks do, and I, and I love it. And I I actually do get a fair number of just random emails in my box saying. Hey, I see you're coming to such a conference. It's my first conference. What should I know? Or, or people will say, I saw this talk that you gave four years ago. Do you, you know, and, and ask me questions about it. And, uh, I love that. And I think that's a great way to, to make connections. I, I think because even after the fact, like speakers or people who wrote a, an interesting blog post or had, a, you know, two or three tweets that you really enjoyed, you can interact with them and reach out. And, and usually those people want to make that connection as well. Another tip for shy people, um, this has happened to me several times now, where someone maybe was too shy to approach me after I gave a talk, but they wrote a blog post, like summarizing, you know, what I was talking about and what they got out of it and what their sort of takeaways were, what their questions were. And um, if I see it, I will reach out to them and say, hey, thanks for writing that up. And let me know if you want to talk about this anymore. And so sometimes moving that conversation from being offline to being online can be um, easier for people who have you know some social anxiety issues too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's worked for me as well too. Have any of you done any sort of like live streaming of coding sessions that you've done? I've done it twice. I haven't live streamed, but James and I paired on something uh, a couple of years ago and I recorded and recorded it and made it available on YouTube. That was fun. I'm afraid that people would see just how bad I am at typing. <laughs> but that's good. I kind that's of want, true. I mean, I've, I've always, I love pairing. Uh, I think I've paired with both you and Sam 
both Coraline and Sam, I've, I've done a lot of pairing with, uh, and always enjoyed it. And I, I always keep wanting to like, man, I wish that we had recorded that and like could release it as an example of like, here's, here's how to actually pair, or here's how we solve this problem. I've dabbled a little bit. I know there's some services out there like livecoding.tv. I've done a little tiny bit of it. I've seen people doing it on Twitch as well. And I wonder if there's, there's some opportunities for networking there as well. It's a little bit different because it's a lot more one way, except for with the person you're pairing with. But at the same time, for example, if you're using YouTube, what is it, YouTube Live or Google Hangouts, Hangouts Live or something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, people can comment on the feed on the live stream. They can also comment on the YouTube channel. I think that, or the YouTube video, which I think effectively are the same thing. And then you can follow up via comments or other ways. But yeah, it's, I don't know, the, the bandwidth on that I don't think is quite as high. I use a system for the conferences and for webinars when I do them called Crowdcast. And when people ask a question, there's actually a question section at the bottom. And you can there's a button there if you're the moderator that you can click and it actually invites them on the screen. And so then you can talk to them that way, which is interesting. So there are systems out there that allow you to do that. But yeah, the, the communication is much more one way uh, under those other circumstances. So some intrepid developer in our audience should get on solving this problem. Yeah. Build me something that will let me pair with people and share the pairing live. <laughs> so one other thing that I'm, I'm going to pull this out of my email course. My email course is about finding a job. It's not about networking. Well, it is, but it's not. And that is that, you know, everybody does a certain number of things. We've talked about, you know, taking a speaker to lunch. But if you can meet somebody who works at a company that has people that you want to interact with, or you just want to meet people in general, find out the next time their coders are going to lunch and see if you can get this person to let you know where they're heading and then let all of the other coders know to save you a spot at the table. I mean, there are all kinds of things like that. You can offer to take somebody from your local community to lunch if if there's a particular connection you want to make there. Um, it doesn't have to be at any kind of formal event or under you know certain formal or organized circumstances around the user's group. There's um there's another great way you can get to know people at local companies too, and that is ask around if anyone is open to having you co-work there. Um, we did a co-working program the last time I worked in an office, which granted was a while ago, but we would basically put out a call on Twitter to say, hey, if anyone wants to come and co-work with us on Friday, come down, we'll buy you lunch, we'll hang out with you, um, we'll pair a little bit. And um, that's a great way to like open yourself up to meeting new people. It's great for recruiting. Um, on both sides of the equation and um, like getting to know people and sharing your space and sharing your time with them. Another yeah. strategy like that that I've used in the past is uh, I've worked at companies where we had lunch and learns occasionally uh, where somebody would offer a brown bag presentation where other people could come in and learn about whatever they were interested in talking about. And if you can uh, make a few slots in that available to people outside the company, that can be good for cross-pollination both ways as well. Yeah, Coraline actually used to work for a company that's local here, and they did JavaScript lunches every week or every other week. Ada Developers Academy um, has a um, lunch with a developer program. Like once a week, they have a developer oh, nice. from the community come in and just have lunch and like let the students 
you know, eat lunch. You, you come, you go into the classroom space and have lunch with the students and they just pepper you with questions because they're so, you know, they're so eager to find out what they're getting into. And uh, another thing that that program does that I, I love is just that idea of having uh, actual working developers in the classroom as TAs or as mentors or tutors to sort of like help model, like this is the work and, you know, reassure people that, you know, nope, everybody struggles with this. It's okay. Yeah, it's good. I think the overall thing that we're talking about here is basically, if if I could boil this down to two major points, one is is that if you go out of your way to be involved, then you'll meet people. And if you keep in mind that they're just people, whether they've been programming 20 years or two years, there's something that you have in common with them that you can actually communicate with them about. And that connection doesn't have to be over some deep, obscure principle of programming. It could be over the fact that you like cats and they like cats, or you have a kid that's the same age, or that you have some other weird lifestyle quirk in common or anything else. And I I think that's really the point, is if you go out and you remember that these are people, then you can make that kind of connection. And those are the kinds of connections that are going to pay off much more than uh, going up to DHH and trying to be his best friend so that you can claim some awesome connection to Rails. You pull a lot of material in uh, from your newsletter specifically about finding finding work and finding positions. Um, and that's certainly a great, great resource and uh, a good goal for networking. But there's other reasons for doing that networking. You know, it's it, And sometimes, you know, people approach it like, I want to have, you know, this relationship with somebody who is famous for just for the sake of that and like what, what's that value but you know it's it's really about um helping to create this web of community that you can be part of and will have a place for you and that's going to support you through not just job searches but also wow i really don't understand cucumber how the heck do i use that i know i'll go ask sam or <laughs> you know like how git how do Right now, you know, I'm trying to learn C and I'm, I'm tweeting about it all the time because, you know, I know all of y'all know C and uh, all these people are coming out of the woodwork and like helping me, you know, with concepts from C. You know, so there's, there's a variety of different uses for it. It doesn't have to be just this transactional, I want to get a job, so I have to go and uh, go to the job fair and pass my card around. It's not just about printing out the resume. I would just add, too, that even if it's just, I just need a friend, that's a totally valid reason for going out and networking. Absolutely. 100%. My partner shuts down pretty fast when I start to talk about code. And so it's, <laughs> it's really nice to be able to have people to geek out about it with. So, yeah. Yep. My cat's the same way. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, on the note about that transactional approach, I think you're actually going to miss out on a lot of stuff if you view networking as, oh, I've got to go and, you know, exchange 10 business cards. Although, you know, maybe that's the way that you introduce yourself to somebody who's taller than you are. I don't know. But uh, I think the important thing to keep in mind about networking is that you get so much more out of it a couple years down the road. I mentioned earlier that I like to look for user groups in places where I travel. Uh, a couple of years ago, I went to Hawaii for the first time. And so I was like, well, I'll see if there's a user group on Oahu. And there was and I went to it. And it was like, 12 people and we had some good conversations. And uh, so I went back a couple of times for vacations and I each time I would say, hey, is there going to be a meeting? And then one of those times I emailed and said, hey, is there going to be a meeting this week that I'm there? And somebody wrote back to say, well, we weren't going to have one, but if you'll speak, we'll do it. 
And so I was like, well, I don't really want to prepare anything new, but I've got like these three things in the can. I can talk to you about any of those. Uh, and so I went and they wanted me to talk about remote pair programming, which was really important for people in Hawaii because they're very isolated from the mainland. Uh, and that was a wonderful conversation. And I met some new people there and uh, had a great time. And then sometime about a year and a half ago, I was uh, looking for a new job and just sort of on a whim, I emailed one of the people from that meetup. And I said, Hey, uh, I know that you said that you were struggling with uh, putting together a remote culture, or at least a pair programming friendly culture. And I, I know that you're all local, but let me know if on the off chance you ever want to hire a remote person, because I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have an excuse to go to Hawaii, right? And, you know, I expected absolutely nothing of this because, you know, it's a small company. They're doing their own thing. And most places that are in one place are really resistant to opening it up to remote. But I got an email back like three hours later saying, hey, your timing is really good. And uh, guess what? That's where I work now. And it's a great job. That's totally, awesome. Totally random. It's a great story. Yeah. I also just like the idea that you put forward to of just showing up and talking about having that remote pair programming culture. I think a lot of times folks think I'm too new to pull together a meetup where in reality, all you have to do is say, we're going to have lunch and talk about something and you make those kinds of connections. And then, yeah, who knows? You have that relationship for a few years and it pays off down the line. Yeah. You don't have to have any sort of special credentials to start your own meetup or start your own resource. I love the story of the, um, gosh, I want to say it's the Chilliwack Ruby user group. Uh, that Miles started up in, in British Columbia, mm -hmm. you know, where he got sick of heading over to Vancouver two hours away to go to the Ruby group there. So he started his own uh, and it was just him and two or three people in the public library. But now it's like seven or eight people um, and they just meet, you know, every Tuesday night or every third Tuesday or whatever it is. You know, and just, you don't have to be you don't have to be a rock star ninja guru to do these sorts of things. Well, and with that group, you don't even have to be a Ruby programmer. I mean, they've got Curtis McHale and a bunch of other folks that do all kinds of stuff. Curtis is a WordPress developer, and there are several other people in that group that don't do Ruby on a regular basis. They just get together and talk about code or whatever the heck else they have going on. And you could have as little or as much organization as you want. The Portland Ruby user group, it was described by uh, one of its older denizens a while ago as an, as an anarchist pirate ghost ship, where people just show up and do stuff. And if nobody shows up and does stuff, then we don't have a meeting. But there's this sort of inertia now where even if nobody does anything at all, uh, as long as there's a venue, like 50 people will show up. I never heard it described like that, but I, I, <laughs> it's awesome. Makes me want to go. Yeah, it's it's actually a funny contrast from the first user group I was in, the Portland Access user group, which actually had a 501c3. And the oh, wow. 501c3 owned two laptops and a projector. And there were membership dues and somebody who showed up with like a little case full of name tags for their members. And, you know, I thought that's just what you had to do for a user group. So when I showed up to, you know, the first time at the Portland Ruby user group, it was, it was eye opening and really cool. We actually have um, two different Ruby meetups in Seattle. Well, actually, we have, uh, last count, we have four official ones. Um, Do either of them use parentheses in method arguments? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the schism. It's the little end, big end Ruby <laughs> user groups. Uh, no, I, I was surprised. There was the Seattle RB, and then the, the Rails meetup, and then there's the R Rails Racer meetup. And then another one got started called Splat RB. And it's completely different uh, groups of people, you know, and they each have their own little different flavor, completely different concerns and populations. It's, it's wonderful. 
there's no excuse for you to say, like, I don't know how to meet people. I don't know how to get out there and put myself out there. There are so many options available to you. And sometimes you just have to be clever. And sometimes you have to trick yourself and uh, a little bit of work. It's going to be a big payoff. Yeah. And again, it's not just about, you know, you don't have to follow this path of, well, now you're at a certain point in your, your career. So now you have to go do conference speaking. There's lots of other options um, that will help you make those sorts of professional connections that will support you, not just, again, not just for the job hunt, but also for new technical challenges, uh, finding the help that you need, and just not being by yourself in a cubicle. Coraline, you mentioned earlier the uh, Opportunity Scholarship Program that, uh, has started, I think it started at Mountain West and then uh, Marty brought it to RailsConf and RubyConf as well. And uh, it's a wonderful program and it's a great place to uh, get involved as somebody who even has just a little bit of experience in the community. Uh, you don't have to be a speaker. I've had somebody who I had as my scholar the first year I did the program as a mentor and then the next year he came back and he was a mentor. So it's a it's a really nice way of passing that community forward, and it's accessible to more people than necessarily are going to be interested in speaking. So that's really nice about it. Plus one, I was a mentor one year. I don't remember which year it was in Miami, but yeah, it was it was a ton of fun, great experience. I've done it at every conference that I've been to that has offered it, and it's always been totally worthwhile. At RailsConf 2014, it was actually really nice to have, like I said earlier, a conference buddy. Like I was overwhelmed at how many people were there, and so it was nice to have one person to look for and go check in and just sit down for a bit. All right. Well, we seem to be uh, winding down, so let's go ahead and do some picks. Coraline, do you want to start us with picks? Sure, I have one pick today. It is an article on Medium by a woman named Nadia Egbal. It is called, I Hate the Term Open Source. The article talks about how we've drifted away from the original concept of open source as ownerless software enforceable by license. And she points out that today, open source means more is more about building and collaborating in public. So there's really a shift in emphasis from the rights of the user, which were sort of the principles that open source was founded on, more to the rights of maintainers and contributors. Um, one of the interesting stats that she points out, and I can back this up, is that only about 20% of public projects on GitHub even have an open source license. But if it's on GitHub and it's a public repo, we'd like by default, call it open source. So she coins the term public software, which I think might be a little bit problematic, but I think it's a really interesting discussion. And it's interesting to take a term that we bandy about so much these days and sort of ask ourselves, what does this really mean anymore? Because open source definitely has changed over the last 20 years. And what we mean by the term has definitely changed over the last 20 years. And I think it's interesting to take some time and reflect on that. So that's my pick for today. I so wanted to like dig into the whole conversation about that, but we're in picks. Uh, Sam, what are your picks? I also just have one today. Uh, this is a Vim plugin I've been using for a year or so called Tabularize. Uh, and this gives you some really nice tools for vertically aligning text. At its simplest, this can take cucumber-style tables that are delimited by the pipe character, and it'll just line them all up so you don't have to sit there like spacing them out. But this actually uh, could get quite a bit fancier than that. I use it to align uh, code along commas, semicolons, hash rockets, colons, parentheses, brackets, and even sometimes the close paren dot to that you use a lot when you're doing RSpec with the uh, expect syntax. It's really powerful. There is one caveat about using it, which is that uh, 
when you change your code in such a way that you have to realign a section, it's really easy to lose the interesting change uh, in amidst all of the white space. So if you're going to do this, I advise you to uh, make get in the habit of uh, making separate white space commits or your coworkers may yell at you. I'm going to put up two links in the show notes for this. One is a link to the plugin itself, uh, and the other is to the section in my VimRC file where I define a bunch of custom leader commands uh, for things that I commonly align on. And that's it for me. Awesome. I'm going to throw a couple of picks out here real quick. The first one is, I don't know if I picked this on the show before, but I've had it for a few months. I bought it when I traveled to Amsterdam for an Angular conference. It is called the Plugbug. I think it's Plugbug World. It has all of the connectors for all of the plugs across all of the you know different places you can travel to, and I really like it. There are two things that I like about it. One of them is, is that it's really easy to swap it out because you just swap the plug off and then it adjusts properly for whatever voltage comes out of the wall. But the other thing is, is that the connector that you slide on, because it slides onto the regular power supply for the MacBook Pro, and it has a USB connector on it. So if I'm sitting at the airport, I can plug this thing in and charge my phone and my laptop at the same time. Or if I'm at a conference and they have the power strip down the table for me and I can't use it, I'm always telling the person like two or three seats down, go ahead and plug your phone in too. And it's just kind of nice to be able to do that. Uh, the other one that I'm going to pick is also a power-related pick, and it is a... I'm trying to think of the right way to do it, because it's not a power strip. Uh, it has eight power outlets on it, and then it has four USB power plugs on it. It has buttons, two on the top, and then one on the side by the USB plugs that will turn uh, turn those on and off, and you plug that into the wall. And if I'm getting together for a meetup and getting together with a bunch of people, a lot of times they have the plug a ways away, or they have it on the other booth, or they have something else going on with it. And so what happens is I can set that in the middle of the table, and then it has plugs facing everybody. It has the USB plugs for everybody's phones, and I usually have a six-foot extension cord on it so that I can plug it in wherever, and then I can just invite people to come sit at my table with me and work. And it's a really great way of being social and making it easy for people to come and just co-work with you because you have power and they need power. So I'm going to throw that out there too. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I got it on Amazon. It was 30 or 40 bucks and it has been really nice for that kind of thing. Also nice at the users groups and such. Carrie, what are your picks? I have two picks as well. The first is kind of a double pick. You know, as part of this networking without actually networking, I have done a lot of conference organizing and I'm actually organizing two conferences. So as a moment of a little bit of self-promotion, I'm an organizer for a conference called MoonConf. That's uh, at moonconf.org, which is happening May 26th to 28th in Boulder, Colorado. And that's a conference for functional programming. Um, I also am an organizer for a conference called Open Source and Feelings, which is happening July 22nd and 23rd uh, here in Seattle, which primarily is focusing on these sort of soft skill things, that, kind of like what we talked about today, but also open source and the future of open source and how we relate to it. The more technical pick for myself is yoyotricks.com and specifically their Sage Yoyo Starter Pack. If you are at all interested in uh, skill toys or yoyos, this is a great what's called a responsive yo-yo, where the yo-yo is actually attached to the string. And they uh, not only is it uh, relatively inexpensive and a great way to get started into uh, picking up a, a hobby, it's a little bit physical and a little bit uh, outside of the norm, but they provide um, hundreds of 
two to four minute videos on how to do different yo-yo tricks and which yo-yos to try them with. Because once you get into, just like every other, uh, every hobby, there's very specialized tools and terms involved. Uh, and it's an entire rabbit hole for a nerd like me. Very cool. If people want to see what else you're up to, Carrie, what, what, what should they do? You can follow me on Twitter. I am Carrie Zor on Twitter. I'm also um, at CarrieZor.com, and I am Carrie Zor pretty much everywhere. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up. Thanks for coming, Carrie. And uh, we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.